teaching text comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's our beginning. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Simple enough, right? Jesus, whoever he is, sees a crowd of people, uh, he gets to a place where he can be seen and heard. Uh, he assumes the posture of a rabbi uh, teaching, which would have been to be seated. Uh, and he begins to teach. Uh, in particular, he begins to teach his disciples, though we obviously see a crowd is present. From that point, from that beginning, uh, Matthew records the largest chunk of uninterrupted teaching uh, that, that we have from Jesus. And it spans from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. Uh, and even still, it, it only takes a few minutes to read the whole thing, um, which for me as a preacher, I, I kind of find a little bit offensive. Like the, the, the greatest sermon ever given takes like nine minutes to read. Come on, Jesus, you're, you're setting the bar too high. Um, but here we have, right, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And whatever you think about Jesus, whatever you believe about his teaching, um, it's undeniable that very few sections of, of literature, maybe none at all, or, or sort, of, sort of episodes of teaching in world history have been the subject of, of more debate, uh, more ink spilt, more conversation, uh, more inspiration, or more frustration, attempts to follow, and all in between uh, than this sermon that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5. Through seven, uh, there's tons of reactions to to what Jesus teaches here. Uh, some people lo love this as an ethical vision for life. Right? We have some historical figures that are familiar to us, like like Gandhi or Karl Marx, who who believe that what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly profound. Uh, but they basically want to separate that teaching from the person of Jesus. Uh, we, we, have, we have others um, who, who actually think the teaching itself is sort of an unrealistic fantasy. It's setting the bar way too high. There's no way we could actually live up to this. And so all it's doing, all the Sermon on the Mount is meant to do, is to show us that we need a Savior, that we need someone like Jesus to res rescue us, and all sort of reactions in between um, those two. So more than likely, if you read the whole sermon in, in the nine minutes that it takes, or however long, um, some part of the sermon you're going to love, uh, that you'll relate to, you'll 
resonate with, probably some parts of it you're going to find offensive. And quite frankly, how it begins as, as a sermon uh, it, it is rather odd. There, there was a precedent in, in rabbinic tradition for how Jesus begins uh, this, this sermon uh, in, in the form of the Beatitudes. Um, but, but Jesus' Beatitudes uh, are kind of unlike a lot of the ones you would read uh, in, a similar, in a similar time in, in, in rabbinical writing uh, around the time uh, that, that Jesus was teaching. His, his, his Beatitudes feel a little bit bizarre or like there's some hidden logic in them that make them hard to follow and hard to know how to interpret. So we have these nice looking uh, poetic couplet type sayings that open the most famous sermon ever given. And they are called the Beatitudes. And uh, something, I I think something about their strangeness, something about uh, the backwardness of them, uh, in a beautiful and mysterious way, it opens up and it shines a light on some of the, the most profound, beautiful, deep realities of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to have an extended look at these Beatitudes, this opening to the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives um, throughout this fall. Dallas Willard uh, is a man who's, who's reading and interpretive work on the New Testament I have such a deep respect for. And he says that in this famous sermon, uh, Jesus is dealing with answering two major questions of human life. The first is, uh, which life is the good life? Uh, h- how do we know what, what is full, abundant, like the best way to live as a human being? And, and second is, is certainly related, who is truly a good person? Which life is the good life and who is truly a good person? My, my uh, assumption is that whether that's on the front of your mind on a regular daily basis, um, still you are considering the reality of those two questions. What makes a good life and, and what makes a good person uh, it's at critical junctures of your experience as a human being? Um, what, what an important set of questions for a sermon to address. And, and one way or another, we all care about the answers to those questions. I, I certainly think Dallas Willard is right that the sermon gets at the answers to those questions, even in these intro statements that we call the Beatitudes. Uh, but the answers to both of those questions also seem to relate uh, to whatever Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of God. This is an, uh, an undeniable reality, something you can't escape if you pay attention to how the gospel writers tell the story of the life of Jesus. He keeps coming back to the reality of the kingdom of God. And so um, if you're tracking in Matthew's gospel in particular, right, this sermon begins in chapter 5. So we've already had four chapters introducing this, this person Jesus to us, and some wild things have already happened. Right. First of all, Matthew, who apparently never took a creative writing class, uh, begins his story of Jesus' life with a genealogy. It's, it's like, Matthew, are you trying to get people to tune, to tune you out? Who starts with a list of names? Um, but Matthew, to give him some, some grace, is, is writing to a particular Jewish audience. Um, his, of the four Gospels, uh, his in particular is, is written with a Jewish audience in, in mind. Uh, and he wants to show them, even if it might bore you and I, that Jesus, this person he's, he's writing about, is the direct descendant of Abraham and the direct descendant of David. Um, the, the, the beginning, uh, Matthew shows us there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And your boy Matthew lists all of them for us. So 
That's not where the excitement ends with, with genealogies, right? Matthew's uh, Jewish reader certainly would have been deeply familiar with the prevailing story of the Torah, uh, the, the prevailing story that gives us God's salvation and covenant love coming to, to their people in, in dramatic rescue in the story of the Exodus, right? The story of the Exodus. Let me give you a massively oversimplified four-word summary uh, of that story. Egypt, water, wilderness, covenant, right? This was the story uh, that Jesus' hearers would have taught their children and their children's children. This was God's rescuing covenant love, saving them out of slavery in Egypt so they could be the blessing that God had promised that a- to Abraham that they would be all those generations ago. So, so Egypt, right? They were slaves in Egypt. They grew up for 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And then God brings them out in dramatic rescue after the plagues and through the water, right? Through the waters of Mount Sinai. Then they're in the wilderness. They're wandering. They're learning how to interact with Yahweh. They're learning how to, to trust him for provision, to trust um, him as he, as, he, as he guides them. And then they come to Sinai, and God gives them his word. He, he gives them his covenant expressed in his word, his law to shape them, to shape them from a people of slavery to a people who lived as God's uh, chosen people, who knew uh, that, how to live in the kingdom of God. So this story would have been deeply entrenched in the hearts and minds of Jesus' hearers to this Sermon on the Mount. But we need to notice something. All all of a sudden, in these first four chapters of Matthew, before we get to the sermon, guess what we have? Egypt, water, (laughs) baptism. Jesus and his his family, Matthew is is the gospel that mentions this particular detail. They had to flee from Herod's um, scheme to to put to death the the children um, in Israel. They had to flee as refugees. Actually, that's how um, uh, the, Israel's first ancestors went to Egypt in the first place. Different threat, but we see Jesus and his family fleeing as refugees uh, to Egypt. Then we see Jesus as he's about to begin his public ministry, going to his cousin John, uh, and he's baptized. So he passes through the waters. And then before he chooses any of his disciples, Jesus goes into the wilderness. And not for 40 years, but for 40 days, he fasts and prays, and he does um, sort of, he's engaged in spiritual conflict and temptation with the enemy of the people of God. Jesus uh, fights back that that temptation with the word and and promise and covenant love of God, and he comes out of the wilderness. So what should we expect to see? Something similar? The word of God's covenant faithfulness given to his people to shape them from slavery to the system of this world to those who can live in the way of the kingdom of God. This is another telling of the reality of how God's salvation breaks into the world and the prevailing story would have been in the hearts and minds of Jesus' hearers as he begins this sermon. Matthew has clearly shown us, not just this uh, boring genealogy at the beginning, even though it's actually rather exciting when you get into it, but he's shown us Egypt, water, wilderness, and now the covenant faithfulness of God expressed in this sort of manifesto teaching of what the kingdom is like. Matthew 4, 17, just before we get to Matthew 5, what do we see from Jesus? From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Reorient your entire life around the reality that the kingdom of God is breaking in and it is breaking in in a personal way through this man, Jesus. So those who knew the story, their ears would have perked up as they they move through Matthew's uh, gospel account. Jesus begins to proclaim 
and to demonstrate the kingdom of God. He, he works miracles to show this is what the kingdom looks like in a material way when it breaks into the world. And then he teaches this is what the kingdom of life here in the Sermon on the Mount and the parables that are to follow throughout the Gospels. So at the end of Matthew 4, just before we get here to Matthew 5, Jesus heals the sick and a huge crowd gathers and he, and he says, now let me show you, let me teach you how you might further experience the kingdom of God. And he begins these Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. So we have briefly mentioned the biblical exodus found in the Torah because it helps frame this sermon that Jesus is about to give, that he is giving. But I also quickly just want to mention another exodus uh, before we get into the substance of what Jesus is saying here. And, and that, that is the exodus from the church uh, that we are experiencing in our culture right now. Right, All the statistics seem, seem to bear this out. Uh, massive um, groups of, uh, of the younger generation in, in America are leaving the church. They're dis- disgruntled and fed up, and, and they're, they're looking elsewhere uh, for, for what makes a good life and what makes a, a good person. I read a, a pretty helpful article this week. David Lowe actually sent it to me uh, from a church leader in Colorado, this guy Brad Edwards, um, who is referencing uh, actually some, some work of another friend of our church, Mark Sayers, um, if you want to read the article, which I'm going to d- describe a little bit of it here, but if you want to read the whole thing, it's called The Church of Individualism. Uh, you can find it on, on the site Mere Orthodoxy. And there's several references in the article to this large exodus um, th- that we're seeing of the, of the younger generations in America, from, especially from theologically conservative churches. Uh, one of the things that gripped me, however, was... was um, was this summary, basically like secularism, this idea of trying to live without uh, higher power, without, you know, almost like a disenchantment of the world, that we take God out of the picture and we try to answer the fundamental questions uh, of life without, without God present, right? That secularism in America often expresses itself as a pursuit of the kingdom of God, many of the things that we see depicted in something like the Sermon on the Mount or or the ethical teaching of the New Testament, to seek the kingdom of God without the king. Mark Sayer says that the pursuit of uh, uh, secularism is the pursuit of the kingdom without the king. But then conversely, many in the American church, maybe even specifically in, in the evangelical church, have come to worship the king, but basically have nothing to do with the kingdom, with the lived reality of the, of the ethics and, and teaching of, 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 the, of, the, of the kingdom coming. The author says of, of Sayer's description, um, it is a beautifully succinct summary of a culture with a historical amnesia of its once upon a time countercultural Christian foundation built to support the social virtues of justice, mercy, dignity, and beauty, all under the umbrella of the second greatest commandment, to love thy neighbor. Tolerance, diversity, inclusion, all are deeply and undeniably historic Christian values that have been divorced from the king who defined their cosmic depth, direction, meaning, and scope. there's, uh, There's a lot in there, but... I, I think it, it's important to have you know, that in our minds as we approach this teaching, uh, Jesus' vision for the kingdom that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. There, there, there are many in our world who said, I want something like the good world that Jesus seems to be describing in the Sermon on the Mount, but, but quite frankly, you can keep Jesus. Uh, 
But then in the church, and this is what, where so much disappointment comes in, there's so many in the church who go on and on about Jesus, who pay tremendous lip service to Jesus, who sing to Jesus every single week, but they're not engaged at all in seeing his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And a generation is saying, listen, that's not for me. So we actually don't even have time to deal with the, the main thesis of, of, of the article uh, that the problem in both camps actually might be radical individualism. Um, but I think that it's important to have um, this sort of stirring in our, in our heads as we begin to look at these opening statements to the Sermon on the Mount. If you look for the virtues, the values of the kingdom of God without Jesus, you're going to end up gravely disappointed even empty, certainly unsustained. But if you want Jesus and you don't want anything of the kingdom of God, uh, then you've deceived yourself into a shrunken down Messiah who, who's basically come as a personal life coach to you and to stamp your passport for the afterlife. And that doesn't work either. Jesus, whatever else you want to say about him, really, really cares about the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. So let's see what he has to say uh, in just this first of the Beatitudes. We're going to work our way through them this fall. And the first one, here we have it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word blessed, um, each of the couplet statements of of the intro to this sermon, the Beatitudes, begin with this word blessed. Jesus wants you to know this is more than a hashtag. Um, The Greek word um, that's translated here is is makarios, and essentially it means happy. Yeah, it means it means fortunate. It was a word um, that was used in Greek to to connote the highest type of well-being. In, in in Greek mythology, this word was used to describe the contentment, the state of bliss that the gods um, w- were in in Greek culture. Right. I, I think uh, an appropriate modern translation of the English uh, would be something like congratulations, congratulations, or hey, wonderful news. Um, you're incredibly fortunate. So right away, if we use that uh, as a translation of this word, this word blessed, um, it, it hits our ears a little bit funny. Luke, when he gives Jesus uh, giving this a very similar sermon, I actually think it's a, a different occasion. But, but in, in Luke's version, um, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, right? Congratulations to those who don't have enough to pay their rent. Congratulations to those who are on food stamps. Congratulations to those who, 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 don't, who are living hand, hand to mouth, right? It just... It hits our ears a little bit funny. And even if Matthew adds uh, congratulations to those who are poor in spirit, when we really hear the translation of those words, it doesn't help us much to get away from the awkwardness of why on earth would you say congratulations to someone who's in a, 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 a radically difficult life situation? Congratulations to those who are destitute in their inner person. It just doesn't sound right. So, so, so how do we make sense of this? And, and lots of people have tried different ways. I, I just give you a couple of them. People try to read the Beatitudes and make them into virtue statements um, that basically someone would need to attain in order to, to be given the kingdom of God as a reward for attaining uh, that, that virtue. But it doesn't really work, right? A few of the Beatitudes as you get down may, may seem like, oh yeah, if I hunger and thirst for righteousness, if I can get myself to that state, then the reward would, you know, would, would be to experience something of the kingdom of God. But it doesn't really work, especially in these early statements in the Beatitudes. So some have tried to say, ah, I'm going to soften the translation a little bit. I'm going to make this mean humility. Basically just like 
Ah, here's humility. Blessed are the humble because they know they need God. And, and that sounds that, that sounds nice. To be poor in spirit means to admit you don't bring anything to the table and, and God has to, to, to do all the rescuing and loving. And actually, you know, as just a, a stand-alone like sort of lesson that, that's reinforced throughout the New Testament, maybe, maybe that works. But this doesn't really work with what Jesus is saying in this particular moment or with the rest of the list that we find in the Beatitudes. So to make these Beatitudes into virtue statements that you have to to attain in order to get the kingdom of God doesn't really work um, in how Jesus is giving others. Another way people try to read these is they make these uh, conditions that God most prefers people to be in. So he's more likely to bless people who are in these conditions. Um, but similarly to, to making them virtue statements, this doesn't really work uh, e- either. Um, we do know, of course, that Jesus shows great love and compassion for the poor. And, and certainly he's interacting in the Gospels uh, with people who are dealing with poverty of spirit. But is he really saying that you have to get to that place or already be in that place to receive his kingdom? I think that would not make this teaching very good good news at all, but would be more like a heavy burden that he would be laying on people's shoulders or people's souls, almost like an impossible obligation. So we have to be careful as we look at the Beatitudes that we're not reading over them some sort of version of like salvation by works or, or salvation by attitude, right? You get to this certain particular attitude unforced in yourself, and then God will love you and give you the blessings of his kingdom. This isn't salvation by a particular situation or even salvation by chance, right? You get later in the list, it's like, how can I make sure that I'm getting persecuted? Well, I need to be uh, really living counterculturally. Like, I don't think Jesus is is, is giving us uh, these things as virtues that we have to attain or as the only conditions that he's willing to bless and, and to bring into his kingdom. So there's another way to read the Beatitudes that I think is faithful to how we see Jesus teaching uh, throughout the Gospels. Jesus, if you pay attention to his, his movements through, through the Gospels, um, he's always using real people and real things around him as he's teaching. Over and over again, he takes examples that are right at hand. Something someone said, something someone did, something that's just happened, and he uses it to expound on the reality of the kingdom. There's a concrete reality to the teaching of Jesus. So as a rabbi in the Jewish rabbinic tradition, Jesus is not just trying to fill his hearers with information that they didn't have before he began speaking. He's trying to change them on the spot. He's not trying to give them more interesting information about what God's like. He's trying to bring them into the kingdom of God. There's a concrete reality to what Jesus is trying to do. So he's looking out over a crowd of people who already are many of the things that we're about to hear listed in these Beatitudes. And he's telling them, you, and you, and you, and you, and even you. The kingdom of God is for you. Maybe you've never felt like anything is for you. Maybe if someone could see your inner state, uh, they would see that it is absolutely destitute. But the kingdom is for you. Maybe if someone could see your apartment or could see behind the scenes in your life or could see behind the scenes of, of your heart or know what you've done or know what you think or know about your obsession or, 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 or know about some part of your life, they would never think that you, that you could be someone whose, whose invitation Jesus uh, would offer, that, that Jesus would bring you into his kingdom. 
There are some who are hearing Jesus as he's giving this sermon who aren't waiting on him to exclude them because they have already excluded themselves. They would have fought the shame in their own hearts to look up and say, is that what he really said? I thought I heard him say, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are, congratulations, you're absolutely destitute in your inner person. Congratulations for your inner mess. God's kingdom is for you. What a way to start a sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I I love how Dallas Willard puts this. The Beatitudes in particular are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship with Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in him, the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. Jesus is showing us right away in this sermon, whatever the kingdom of God is, here's a manifesto of the kingdom of God found in the Sermon on the Mount, found in this intro in the Beatitudes, and whatever else it is, it is saying the kingdom of God is available to someone no matter where they start. Jesus is going to show us he is going after unreliable guides in our life. Wrong answers to the questions, what makes a good life and what makes a good person? And there are many wrong answers to the question, what makes a good life and what makes a good person? And Jesus is going to go after those unreliable guides in this sermon. And he's showing us right away as the manifesto begins. This sermon is going to be exposing unreliable guides in our life, whether they're coming to us externally from our culture or internally through our shame. So, Right here in the first one, he's exposing an unreliable guy that was prevalent in the minds and hearts of his hearers. And Dallas Willard says it succinctly, so I'll just give it to you from him. The common assumption of the time, as in many times since, was the prosperity of the rich indicated God's special favor. So there would have been people who would have excluded themselves from, from receiving special attention or love or care or grace from God because of the shame of their life circumstances and how that shame had been in internalized. Many of those Jesus was speaking to to would have been so discipled by their poverty that it shaped their soul. Their status as an occupied people, those status, their, their status as those so heavily taxed by Rome that they were living hand to mouth, their lack would have sunk into their bones. They were poor in possession and poor in spirit. There's no real division then between Luke's version of this and Matthew's version of this, but Matthews helps us realize that there's another category present as well. There would have been some there who did have enough, who maybe even had great wealth, and yet they were tormented by a different lack. The lack that comes when you get what you want and you realize it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't meet the deep needs of your soul. There were some there who who were poor in possession and poor in spirit, and there were some in the audience, uh, in the crowd, surely, who were flush in possessions and still poor in spirit. Jesus looks out over the crowd into the faces. You right? Imagine this with me. He's looking out over this crowd. He's not pulling ethereal examples from just a mere philosophy. He's talking concretely about the lives of these people and how the kingdom of God is going to intersect their real lives. He looks out over the crowd into their faces, into the hearts whose secrets he can hear, and he begins his sermon with this. 
Congratulations. Wonderful news. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Those who are unable to scrape together even one ounce of respectability or self-esteem. What a beginning of a sermon. Uh, Just to reinforce this just a a tiny bit, because Jesus doesn't just hit this here. Uh, It's reinforced uh, later in the Gospels. In Luke 10 in particular, Jesus tells a story that that, that many of us know the basics of, right? There's a Seinfeld episode about the Good Samaritan law near near, near the end of of the series. We know the the idea of the Good Samaritan is someone who helps someone that they're passing by who's in, in, in trouble. When Jesus first told this story, the, the title itself was an absolute oxymoron to those who were listening to them. The idea of a good Samaritan had no frame uh, of reference for them. It would have been absurd to hear. A man is talking with Jesus, and um, Jesus is, 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 is telling him, basically, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the guy's sort of trying to wiggle out of it. So he asks Jesus the question, oh, well, then who's my, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story, and he makes a hero of the story, someone that his listeners would have absolutely despised in order to shock them. The details of the story are pretty basic. The Good Samaritan, you, you, can, you can check it out for yourself, but a man is on the road from Jerusalem uh, to, Jer- to, to Jericho, um, and he, he is, he's beaten, um, he's robbed, and he's left unconscious, you know, more than likely in, in, a, in a coma. Basically, he's going to die without help. And then Jesus has a few people come along. The first is a priest, right? His hearers would have assumed this man has a rich inner life, a deep connection to God, spiritual work to do. But he comes upon the man and he leaves him. He cannot be bothered. So we have a priest in the next, a Levite or, or, or someone who might be a deacon in our, in our church who served God and served others. And he comes along and he also has spiritual work to do. Maybe he doesn't want to get near this man who's, who's bleeding and who might be even dead because he's going to the temple. He doesn't want to become ritually unclean. He's so spiritually rich that he can't be bothered with the brokenness of his neighbor. And then Jesus has the Samaritan a man who would have been hated by those Jesus was speaking to, right? Uh, they, they thought of the Samaritans as a race of traitors, as those who were absolutely spiritually destitute, and yet Jesus makes him the hero. The, 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 the Samaritan is the only one who goes to the man, who cares for him, who tends to his womb, who puts him, uh, who, 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 who carries him out of that situation, who provides for him, who makes sure that there's going to be ongoing care for him. He literally saves this man's life. And we're so familiar with this story that our familiarity sort of breeds contempt and we just, we just go, you know, go past it and we don't, we don't get the scandal. But whoever you need to put into the place of the Good Samaritan so that you get at the reality that Jesus is talking about someone that everyone would have thought was spiritually destitute, you need, you need to do, right? I was trying to think of examples and kind of all of them make me cringe. But instead of the Good Samaritan, maybe you need to put in there the person who is proudly voting for the candidate that you despise or the racist person in your office. Or if you're in, in Israel, you're speaking about a Palestinian person or, or if you're in Palestine, you're speaking about an Israeli person. Or, or maybe you need to put in this story a white supremacist. Or maybe you need to put in this story someone who is representing Antifa. Or maybe you need to put Jeffrey Epstein, whoever will help you arrive at the appropriate amount of shock. There is no way this person could be the hero of the story. There's no way compassion and love and goodness could come out of this person. There's no way this person who is poor in spirit can receive the kingdom of God. 
by the end of the story, the man who's been trying to trick Jesus or wiggle out of, of his responsibility, he gets it. Jesus says, who is a neighbor to this man? And it's an interesting detail. The man responds, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the Samaritan. Can't even get his, his mouth to say it. I can relate, right? Jesus is saying there's not a category of person, no matter what your estimation of them is, no matter how poor they are in spirit in their internal life or by your uh, account, that cannot receive God's mercy and join in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And that is, no matter where you think you are on the spectrum, remarkably good news. Dallas Willard, one more time, says, The Beatitudes serve to clarify Jesus' fundamental message, the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all of humanity through reliance upon Jesus himself, the person now loose in the world among us. They do this simply by taking those who from the human point of view are regarded as most hopeless, most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest and exhibiting them as enjoying, enjoying God's touch and abundant provision from the heavens. These are not just virtue statements that we're supposed to attain. These are not just a list of conditions that Jesus most favors, and so they're going to get God's blessing. This is Jesus looking out of the crowd and saying, you and you and you and even you, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is for you. It is a sermon based on concrete examples. It is a kingdom, but it is embodied in a king who is dispensing radical amounts of grace. The person of Jesus makes the blessings of the Beatitudes possible. As shocking as they were, Craig Blomberg uh, commentating on this, one of the uh, New Testament scholars who's done the most work on this, says it is impossible to separate Jesus' ethic from allegiance to his person. And this reality is carried throughout the New Testament. Whatever else the church did wrong, one thing that they did right in many places was they, was they held on to the reality of this extravagant grace at the heart of the gospel. And they didn't regard one another just by the way human beings evaluate one another. We, we, we see it in some of the earliest letters that the church passed amongst themselves. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-18. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Kingdom. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who did what? Who reconciled us to himself and through Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation because we were poor in spirit and Christ embraced us. Now we turn around and look to anyone who is poor in spirit, whether they know it or not, and we give them the invitation of grace that God has given us. We extend mercy and love and all the fruits of the spirit to our world because we have a kingdom and we have a loving, saving, rescuing king in the center of the heart of that kingdom, and that is what the Beatitudes are bringing out to us. People are leaving the church because they're longing for the kingdom, but they'd rather not have the, the restriction of allegiance to the king. And some people are in church, and they're finding it empty because they have supposed allegiance to the king, but they're not seeing the reality of his kingdom. Jesus' sermon is pulling these realities together, the kingdom and the king. My invitation to you as we move through these Beatitudes is to listen for the staggering grace 
and what Jesus is doing here. For the coming together of the kingdom and the king. Because I think when we see it, when we experience it, when we receive its invitation, it is better than anything in our wildest dreams. It is the most astounding answers to the question, what makes a good life? And what makes a good person? What makes a good community? What makes a good city? What makes a good world? What makes a good future? What's possible even in a year as wild and crazy and disappointing and frustrating and agonizing and grief-stricken as 2020? The Beatitudes come in and say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Are, are, you, are, you, are you mourning? Are you feeling powerless? Are you hungering for justice to be done? The kingdom of God is yours. It's available. And how? Through the person of Jesus. Through the one giving us this sermon, the one who's come from Egypt through the water, through the wilderness to give us a covenant of grace. Covenant of his broken body and shed blood to rescue us and bring us in and make us family forever. You and you and you and you. Not only do I know your name, I know your story, I know your secrets, I know the things that you're ashamed of that you want no one to see. I know the things that 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 uh, contribute to your poverty of spirit. And let me tell you, it doesn't disqualify you from my embrace, from my grace, from my love. Jesus, this is Jesus' heart towards us, church. Let's receive it today. Let's receive it as we move through this, this fall, looking at these, uh, these Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, may your staggering grace come through by the power of your Holy Spirit to your church right now. I pray that right now people would turn to Jesus for the first time or for the millionth time. And they would see no matter what their poverty of spirit, no matter what their lack, no matter what their condition is right in this moment, they are not disqualified from receiving your grace because this isn't a story about how great we can be, but a story of how great you already are. How transcendent and powerful and, 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 and bringing breakthrough your mercy is, your grace is. It was shocking. God, let us be shocked and offended even by the story of the Good Samaritan, by what Jesus is teaching here. May your grace come shining through. God, may we experience, God, we want your kingdom to come in Brooklyn as it is in heaven, but we want to be it to come with full love and allegiance and joy in relationship to you, Jesus, as the King. Would you do that in our hearts? Would you do that in our church? Would you minister to us um, by the specificity of your word in each of our each of our hearts and minds right now. Holy Spirit, do, do the work that only you can do in your church right now. In Christ's name, amen.